I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Debbie Merritt interviews a white-collar immigration lawyer who talks about the charged political atmosphere she operates in. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities. We're joined today by Melina LaMorticella, a 2010 graduate of Lewis and Clark Law School. Melina is an associate at Tonkin Torp, an 80-person firm in Portland, Oregon. Now, I know you work as a business immigration attorney for your firm. This part of immigration law is different from what most people may think of first, which would be immigration of people who have family members in the United States or people who were subject to some sort of political prosecution in their home country. You're focusing on people who businesses want to bring to the United States in order to act in some professional capacity. And so tell us about the legal constraints on that. What is it that a company has to prove in order to bring one of these workers? It depends partially on the capacity in which the company is trying to bring their employee into the United States. In general terms, there are foreign nationals coming to the U.S. are roughly divided into two groups of people. And those are immigrants, people who are coming to live and work in the United States indefinitely. Immigrants are what we call green card holders. And then there are non-immigrants. And non-immigrants are people who are coming to the United States for a temporary purpose. And that could be to attend school, to travel, or to work in a temporary capacity. What a company employer has to prove will depend on which category of visa they're seeking for the employee. In general, our clients usually bring employees in on a temporary non-immigrant visa. And after the employee's been here for a while, they'll seek an immigrant visa on their behalf. Um, For a lot of our clients, they use what's called an H-1B visa or, or an E-3 visa. And these are 
temporary work visas that are available to foreign nationals who are professionals, who are coming to work in the United States in a professional capacity. And so that means that they're coming to work in an occupation that requires, at a minimum, a bachelor's degree. Then they have to demonstrate that they have the required degree. Sometimes it's really obvious that the position being offered to the employee is a professional position. You know, if we're doing a petition for a software engineer or a doctor, we don't have to provide too much of an analysis regarding the professional nature of the position. However, if we're doing a a petition for a marketing analyst or a computer systems analyst, there's just certain occupations that everyone else considers to be professional except the government. And then we have to go into some lengthy arguments there. And, And sometimes we're also bringing people in to work in a capacity that's sort of unusual. In the high tech field right now, there's a new group of people, they're, they're called user experience professionals, and it's this interesting hybrid of people who have a background in psychology, design, and then computer science. And really what they're doing is making software and interfaces that are friendly to the users. A petition for someone in that occupation is going to require a lot of explaining to USCIS. Explain that little bit of alphabet soup. What is USCIS? USCIS is the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, and this is the agency that used to be INS prior to 9-11. It's um, under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. And they're the ones who make the decisions on whether a visa is issued, I take it. So they're the agency that uh, processes and approves immigration benefits from within the United States. Their counterpart outside the United States would be Department of State and the embassies, the consulars' offices. Consulates and embassies outside of the United States are in charge of processing immigration benefits abroad. So when you're working for a particular client, are you in touch with the consuls and embassies abroad or with the agency inside the United States or both? Sometimes both. And then sometimes we're dealing with the Department of Labor. And then sometimes we're also dealing with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, also part of Department of Homeland Security. So frequently the way it works is not all petitions, not all visas require this process, but this is pretty typical for a non-immigrant worker. Initially, the employer files a petition with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the United States, and that petition will include a description of the employee coming into the U.S., an explanation of the company sponsoring the employee, proof that the company can pay the offered wage, documentation of the employee's credentials, There could be some other items in there. USCIS will process and approve the petition, or they'll issue what's called a request for additional evidence. Once the petition's approved, and they don't always approve it, sometimes they deny them, then they approve the petition and the case, case notification will go to the consulate. The employee then appears at the embassy or the consulate and with proof of the petition approval and the embassy issues a visa. 
the visa entitles the employee to seek admission into the United States on the basis of the employer's petition. And then it's the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol protection that's ultimately responsible for determining the employee's admission. So any of those agencies along the way can decide that the employee is not eligible to come to the United States. Wow. It's a long road, a lot of red tape. It is a long road and it's a lot of red tape. And some of our clients are employees who, you know, I explained earlier that usually employers bring foreign nationals in on a temporary basis before seeking a green card for them. And for employees who are from China and India and certain countries, there's a huge backlog for green cards. So they might be in this temporary non-immigrant status for decades and have to deal with this process constantly. And it's, you know, we can get a petition approved by USCIS and the embassy can decide to deny it for some reason. (laughs) And then your client's stuck outside and can't come in. And sometimes (laughs) That happens even for people who've been living and working in the United States for years. Tell us about the other hurdles. You mentioned before that the person has to qualify as a professional. They have to win the lottery. And and I think you said there was also a requirement that this is a need that can't be fulfilled within the United States. That's for uh, immigrant visas. Oh, immigrant visas. For green cards, yeah. So for the temporary ones, it's just, it has to be a professional, and then we have a lottery. Right. Those are for the H-1B visas. Why do we limit that so tightly? That's a really good question. (laughs) Why do we? And and the number was created before we had a high-tech industry. It was created during a time when our economy looked nothing like it looks now. I think the number... It's possible that that limit is in place to protect the U.S. workforce. I imagine Um, so. Yeah. And also there are certain members of Congress who think that all employment-based immigration visas are, are subject to fraud. And so that's one way to keep control of it. I do want to mention there's a lot of costs that go into these. The government filing fees for these petitions, it's almost $5,000. And that you know doesn't include the fees that, that are paid to, to our office to prepare and file these petitions. Wow. Do you have to pay the $5,000 if you lose the lottery? No, those filing fees come back. Okay. Um, but... <laughs> But not the but legal still, fees. But not the legal but not fees. The, but not the legal fees. And it's very, you know, it's a little bit challenging to explain to your clients your hiring needs are going to have to be based on this random lottery that will occur in April. And even if you make it in, your employee can't start till October. You know, a lot of the employees who qualify for this particular visa a lot of them are here as students, and then um, when they're finished with a degree program, they're eligible for temporary work authorization that allows them to work for any employer in the U.S. without being sponsored for a visa as long as the work is in their field of study. 
And so they'll start working for an employer here who then decides to keep them on long term and sponsor them for these petitions. And that's when we get involved. But these are highly skilled professionals who've dedicated their, their, you know, they're banking their career on working in the United States. And so when they don't make it into the lottery, it's really, it's a loss for them and it's a loss for their employers. What do you think about the political outcry nowadays about immigration? I can imagine some voters out there saying, well, so what? These are jobs that should go to Americans. We have more than enough lawyers, for example, to fill legal positions. (laughs) We do. We do have a lot of lawyers. In fact, we were asked to look at filing an immigrant petition for a recent um, law school grad for one of the firms in town. She was a foreign national student who went to law school here and made it through the lottery, got the temporary work visa. And, you know, there's a limit on how long you can stay in the United States in that temporary status. And then you need to get a green card. So she was facing that limit. And we explained, you know, she it was a petition that would require a test of the labor market. And there were so many unemployed law school graduates at the time that there was no way her petition would survive that that test. So she ended up leaving the U.S. for a while. And that brings us to that other important category when we're going to move a worker from this temporary status, which is renewable for a period of time, to a green card. That's when they face this issue of showing the labor market needs. Yes, right? yes. Not for all categories, but for a lot of professionals who are here in a temporary capacity, their employers, we work with them to conduct a test of the labor market, which involves recruiting for a position that's already filled and then proving to the Department of Labor that there are no U.S. workers who are qualified and willing to fill the position. And it's a very tedious and somewhat ridiculous process. The Department of Labor regulations tell us you have to follow all of your normal recruitment processes and then they enumerate all of these exact steps and exact language that have to be you know, included in the process. One of the steps is advertising in a, a Sunday newspaper of general circulation. <laughs> No one recruits in the newspaper now. <laughs> right. I mean, we're telling our clients, you've got to run this, you know, lengthy ad for employers that are in New York. This is an ad that has to pe- appear in the Sunday New York Times. It's it's crazy. Yeah. There's so many things like that. I think that when you're probating an estate, you have to publish in a newspaper about the estate so that any creditors know that they can come and make their claims. Right. Again, who's going to read the newspaper on that sort of thing? Right. Exactly. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. 
Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. Now that we have a background on the types of clients that you help, Melina, tell me about a typical day. What sorts of things would you be doing? A typical day is me receiving emails or calls from clients. And usually I'm working with HR managers. Sometimes it's in-house counsel, but most of the time it's, it's HR managers. And they'll have an employee abroad or they're considering hiring a candidate that needs visa sponsorship. And my initial role is to just Ideally, we're being contacted before there's even an offer of employment being made to the individual to confirm that the individual is going to be eligible for a visa. And if they are, you know, are there any limitations or restrictions? Confirm that the job that's being offered to the individual is going to qualify. Once we've assessed all of that and we give the client the green light, they come back to us once the offer of employment's been accepted. And then we go through a long process of me working with my staff here, gathering information and documents, both from the employer and the employee. Our office represents both the employer and the employee in the process. So you know, we explain at the onset that this is dual representation and we talk about how we cannot keep information confidential from any of the parties. So our communication is is really with both the employer and the employee gathering information. And then we start um, preparing petitions and, and it will depend on what we're, you know, what exactly we're doing. Sometimes The first step is filing a form with Department of Labor to prove that the employer is going to pay at least the prevailing wage. In that case, we're assessing to make sure to determine what is the prevailing wage. Is our employer going to be paying that? A lot of times we run into situations where the employer isn't paying prevailing wage, so we have to go back and forth on that. And the point there, I take it, is to make sure that employers don't bring in people from overseas, pay them substandard wages, which might both hurt those employees and also hurt the labor market generally. Exactly. exactly. So whenever we're working on a visa petition that involves Department of Labor, it's always going to require some form of notice to U.S. workers and some wage determination. Let me go back and ask you something about the conflict of interest and the confidentiality. Would an example of that be something like, here we have an employee that the employer is planning to hire, bring into the United States, and the employee says to you, 
you know, I don't think this would affect my work at all, but I don't know if this will affect my immigration status that I do have this conviction for a crime three years ago. And, this, <laughs> you know, and, and so now the employer, though, you can't keep that secret from the employer. No, no. And that's actually, that comes up pretty regularly. And that's not the tricky, that's not so much a the hard okay. um what are the situation? Hard- because in that, you know, that's going to impact the employee's ability to right. possibly to get a visa. So the employer has to be aware of it. It becomes harder when we're, you know, working on a green card. And at some point, the employee, and this almost always happens, says, well, after I get my green card, how long do I have to work for this employer? <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's a good point to remind them of our dual representation and how we can't keep information confidential. And then, you know, I just give them general advice. The flip side, of course, is we've brought someone in and then we are told by the employer that they're going to let that employee go, that it's not working out. Hmm. Do you ever get to a point where the dual representation doesn't work and you have to withdraw? Yeah. Or we have to get a waiver. So usually if our employer terminates an employee and that employee were to go work for another employer, we couldn't assist that employer number two with the petition process. Sometimes it's more of an amicable split and, you know, we're paid by the employer to help the employee transition into some other status. But that's usually where the conflicts come up. You mentioned earlier the all of the detail work and the tedium, I think you used the word, as part of this process. What are the fun parts of it for you? That's a good question. There are some, um, I hope. Yeah, there there are. The fun parts are learning people's stories I and learning how our community works and how our businesses work. And the nature of this work is we have a, a wide variety of clients that do all, all sorts of things. I recently did a petition for an employee whose background is manufacturing and, and working in an industry that manufactures automobile parts. And it was just, you know, I never think about where the different parts of my car come from. And I learned that from this process. And it was really interesting. And it also shows in a very concrete way how global we are. And I know it, it sounds really corny. But I do believe that the United States is, I think we're one of the best countries to live in in the world. And the fact that we have professionals from all over the world who want to come here is inspiring and it gives me optimism. You know, I have a colleague who who says, you know, listening to all the political rhetoric, you know, his thoughts are the day we have to worry is the day when no one wants to come here anymore. It must and make you feel good to help both individuals and the companies that employ them, and really also the economy of the United States generally. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when it works well, I do feel, I do feel good. When we get bogged down by bureaucracy and negativity, it gets a little harder. Yeah. You're dealing with a mind boggling number of agencies. If there was anything you could change either about your job or about the immigration system, what would it be? What are some of your top items? 
Oh, <laughs> we, we have a wish list. You know, my top items would be almost getting, doing away with my job. I think the numerical limit on H-1Bs should be um, removed because the process is so cumbersome and expensive that no one is hiring me to obtain these petitions, these visas for employees, unless they absolutely have to. And frankly, it's a waste of money. Um, So I would get rid of the cap on H-1Bs. And the government needs to revamp how employment-based green cards are allocated and because that's a ridiculous, cumbersome process. And then once you make it through the process, there's a limitation on how many green cards are available, and it's divided by country. So we have employees who will wait 20, 40 years before their green card becomes available. And that needs to be reformed. I didn't realize we still divided by country in terms of immigration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For employment and family. Mm. So people from populous countries are highly represented in the United States, India, China, the Philippines, Mexico, and they face an extreme backlog in visas. And it's Canada has a much easier system. We're going to start losing really talented people to other countries. And when you look at our country's greatest innovations, so many of them come from immigrants. And we really rely on that new energy and new talent to make us who we are. So it worries me. Yeah. One last question. You, like many other lawyers, do work in an area that has political implications. How do you balance that? One sense you're a professional just focused on helping clients obtain particular ends, but you also have particular knowledge about this area that's a very political one. Do you feel that you have a special role in speaking out in the public policy debates or do you try to keep quiet? How do you balance that? Mostly, I don't speak out. There are some members and some colleagues who who are very vocal. I feel like The biggest service I can provide is just educating people. Most people have no idea how hard and difficult this process is. My role is is just speaking out when there's someone who's actually interested and, and wants to learn more. Well, hopefully we've done some of that with this podcast. I was blown away by the $5,000 fee and the lottery <laughs> and then the fact that you might not get renewed and you get thrown out. And yeah. if you come from the wrong country, you have to wait 20 years to get a green card. It's it's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Absolutely. I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.